You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 23rd of August 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. This whole thing about uh, flipping, they call it. I know all about flipping for 30, 40 years. I've been watching flippers. Everything's wonderful. And then they get 10 years in jail and they they flip on whoever the next highest Mm -hmm. one is or as high as you can go. It, It almost ought to be outlawed. It's not fair. But what possible reason could Donald Trump have for being so deeply interested in this particular potential reform of the justice system? My guests Mary Dijewski and Florence Biedermann will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the release of the UK government's best guesses of what a no-deal Brexit might look like, the meeting of the National Security Advisers of the United States and Russia, and they are, for the moment, different people, and possibly the worst judged politician's holiday in recent memory. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Mary Dijewski, columnist for The Independent and The Guardian, and Florence Biedermann, London Bureau Chief for Agence France Presse. Uh, welcome both, and we will start here in the UK, where listeners with memories stretching back a couple of years and a bit will be able to recall advocates for Brexit soothingly assuring that the process would be an easy, agreeable amble to sunlit our plans of prosperity and so forth. A couple of years and a bit later, the UK government has begun publishing advice on the implications of Brexit occurring about seven months from now without a deal in place. The most optimistic summary would appear to be minor inconvenience for intangible reward, the most pessimistic self-inflicted national emergency. Um, Mary, first of all, uh, there is a lot of detail uh, in these uh, reports, and these are these are not the first. There is plenty more where this came from. Uh, basically, what have we learned? <laughs> well... <laughs> What have we learned? I mean, there's so much more print to this. I mean, I found it completely unbelievable because some of this is what the government has been steadfastly refusing to make public for months. Um, There was always the idea that this material existed, that it was being worked on, um, but it wasn't published. Suddenly today, we've got a whole string of papers, of precautions um, that companies and others might be wise to take in the event of a no-deal Brexit. And given that the government has been speaking for the last sort of two months, every time somebody produces some some sort of warning like saying, oh, well, the health service and GPs are busy stockpiling medicines for six months because there may be disruption in supplies, government and the Brexiteers have turned around and said, that is complete rubbish. That is the fear agenda. They're just trying to tell people that that, 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 um, everybody that everybody should fear Brexit and there should be another second referendum. Now what we see is that exactly that and a whole slew of other measures that look very similar to the supposed alarmism are actually put down in black and white as precautions that companies and people should be taking. 
Uh, there is some extraordinary detail in there. Um, I, I was particularly struck by just the stuff as minute as the fact that the UK will, in the event of a no-deal Brexit, Florence, need to shoot new warning pictures to put on cigarette packets because the, the copyrights uh, of all those pictures of diseased lungs uh, are in fact owned by the EU. Come, if, if, especially in the event of a no-deal Brexit, Brexit, come March 30th next year, there's going to... Britain is suddenly going to be confronted with about 20,000 things it didn't even think about, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this love of detail is a bit suspicious to me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Why did they choose that kind of example on cigarette packs? Is it really one of the most important things that will affect uh, the, um, the life of the people? So, I mean, these documents, yes, are interesting. Uh, to me, they are interesting because, yeah, they, they have selected some topics. Uh, you think the list is much longer. Why did they choose this one? Because they want to, to, I don't know, to impress the population. What makes me angry also and very sad because... I'm not for Brexit. I'm a convinced European and I'm sad to see the, the UK leaving the EU. Is to say that this is the description of what it was to vote for Brexit. I mean, there is nothing new in a way in those papers, you know, as you say, just things you should realize. But the fact, for example, that there would be more taxes, more tariffs uh, for, for the, the business, etc. All, all, all this was known before. Uh, all those rules that were linking the country. So what really makes me angry is that people voted for this without knowing all this. I mean, Mary, is there a, a, a subtext of political theatrics in the release of these documents? Is the government trying to either frighten uh, Brexiteer headbangers into agreeing to go along with some sort of deal? Or is it perhaps even trying to fumble its way through to a second referendum? <laughs> um, well, I would love to think it's the second, um, but I very much doubt it because I think there are problems there, um, constitutionally for one, and second, um, because of the absolute fury that there was would be on the um, Brexiteer side and not just from the arch-Brexiteers in government, but I think quite a long way through um, the population of people who voted for Brexit. So I think that's a difficult thing. Um, the idea that they've chosen... Um, now, it's it, it's hard for me to gauge whether they whether they've released the um, these papers now, um, which is the few days before the bank holiday weekend um, <laughs> of the summer holiday. Have they put them out now um, in order that everybody ignores them, that they supposedly pass over them in silence because they've got better things to do, or have they put them out now in order to be noticed, as you put it, for the theatrics, um, because the news agenda will tend to be so flat that it will actually get more notice. So really, I have absolutely no idea why they've put them out because it seems very... Um, somehow there's a, a big dissonance between putting out those sort of detailed, very dry sort of documents that actually affect so many people and so many interests in this country at a time when probably the majority of the country is on holiday. Uh, Florence, I'm not, I'm not just asking you uh, to speak here on behalf of the 27 other members of the EU because you <laughs> are ready. French. I'm ready. But I am going to do that anyway. Do you get the impression that while, while Britain's politics com, you know, are still completely gripped by Brexit to the point of you know, being completely unable to address or accomplish anything else, has the rest of the EU just arrived at a point of being past caring? Has, has the EU just resigned itself to the fact that this is going to happen and if if Britain wants to sort of uh, inflict this enormous wound on itself for no particularly good reason then there's not really a lot we can do about it. 
Well, I, th- I think they are concerned. I mean, n- not all the, um, the citizens, of course, but in Brussels, I, th- I think there is still this worry, like uh, it's, it's what Jeremy Hunt and uh, Dominique Rabe have been repeating uh, since a while, that uh, they will inflict wounds to themselves if uh, if they don't also agree to, 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 to give some leeway and to conclude the negotiation. So th- this is what, what they are going repeating. So maybe they are publishing those documents a bit. At, it's the, the same timing, you know, after Theresa May went and visited all these uh, countries like to try to convince them we want a deal we want a deal this is kind of general offensive like uh, no deal would be bad for everybody for you the EU for us so um, I guess it may be also a tactic like to, to, to get some more leeway uh, in the negotiation from the EU Okay, well, let's uh, move along now and look at the United States, where President Donald Trump has been saying words again. While his latest outbursts have been no more coherent than usual, they are of added interest in that they, that they are responses to Tuesday's double whammy of his longtime fixer pleading guilty to several felonies and his campaign chairman being convicted of a similarly lengthy rap sheet. In an interview with some obligingly pusillanimous hack on Fox News, Trump mused that cooperating with prosecutors, as Cohen now said, seems willing to do should be made illegal and if that he were to be impeached the stock market would crash i'd be pretty willing to take that bet actually but uh, mary on on the subject of flipping first of all uh, there is a bit of uh, late breaking news uh, from the the you would need a heart of stone not the laugh out loud file which is that uh, during the course of the cohen case it appears that david pecker the chief executive officer of american media inc publisher of the national inquirer among other journals of record a uh, longtime friend of donald trump uh, appears to have gone over the wall as well. Um, Yes, it appears that um, all the sort of um, legal action that there appeared to be and the gagging clauses and everything that stopped the National Enquirer publishing um, presumably salacious stories of um, women who had um, allegedly had affairs with Donald Trump, um, that that those gagging orders may now be effectively null and void and um, publication can go ahead. So I think, you know, if we're interested, this is time to buy a few copies of the National <laughs> <laughs> um, Florence, does it strike you, and it still strikes me watching again uh, Trump's just bewildered performance uh, on, on Fox News, and that is as obviously as sympathetic an audience as he's ever going to receive. Is there a genuine possibility, uh, and I, I've run this past other panellists before, that he actually doesn't understand what he is supposed to have done wrong, that he simply has no idea how anything works uh, and therefore has no comprehension of what rules he may have broken. Well, I may hope that a guy who is elected president of the United States is not a complete idiot. And I, I, the, I think the, the, the evidence to the contrary is beginning to accumulate. Well, well, you can use <laughs> other words than uh, uh, lack of intelligence. No, what strikes me is like everybody is astonished by such declaration, you know, like saying that oh, flipping would, wouldn't be, could be outlawed. Like it's the basic basis of many prosecution uh, in so many trials. So it's the basic, one of the basis of the judicial system in America. So the president saying it's wrong and then defending Paul Manafort, his former aide, who has just been convicted, saying he's a great guy. But that is Trump, you know, it goes on and on. I mean, since two years now, and what is still more astonishing to me is that when you ask, that there was a documentary on the BBC, when you ask his supporters, so what do you say? Like, the guy lied, the guy... Their answer is, oh, but everybody lie. Oh, but anyway, and and they are still supporting him. So in, in there is this perverse cycle, like... 
he's acting as every politician is supposed to act, but he's not worse than the others. And in any case, he's even much better because he says everybody is wrong uh, and fake news is all around. So it looks like he's not even for his support or he's still not losing their support. But I think there are, there are reasons, actually, why, why Trump isn't losing support. And in some things he says, you know, I have a certain sympathy for him um, because in the matter of what he calls flipping... Um, Plea bargaining, to my mind, is one of the most pernicious aspects of the American justice system. Um, it means that you can actually you can negotiate about something which really should not be negotiable. It should be a matter of crime and punishment. So, although he's making a special case for himself and for his his entourage, nonetheless, I think he's right that he's right to about saying, well, you know, if you started impeachment proceedings, then um, the economy could collapse. The stock market. Go down. That is absolutely true because what people dislike above all is instability, and that would be a new element of instability in a very unstable situation. So I, I, I think that the trouble is that there are nuggets of truth that come through what Trump says, um, and is, you don't have to be a Trump voter to appreciate. Isn't that. Trump in and of himself an unstable situation, though? Well, he is, but. He is presided, um, for whatever reason, over economic indicators that are going up. And that's how it looks in Heartland America. And so if something happens that looks as though it threatens to dislodge Trump, that is an extra element of instability. You can see that that would be a shock. Uh, Florence, on the subject of that, that hardcore fan club that he does have, which do seem completely unbudgeable uh, no matter what he does or says, uh, was he, as some people have speculated during his Twitter outbursts uh, over the last 24 hours, sending them a bat signal when he he sort of ventured off topic to to suggest that he was going to ask the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, to take a close look at the plight of white South African farmers, which seems an extremely niche interest for the President of the United States to be uh, taking, especially at a moment like this. Yeah, I'm not sure this is what people will remember of his intervention. And... Um no, I mean, it's, it's just a second, second range question. What, what is interesting also is that he himself is alluding not to the possibility of being impeached. And I think it's the first time. So which means he's rather on the defensive uh, and still like there is something really bothering for him in all this. Uh, Mary, is it, have we reached in the last, I guess, especially 72 hours, a point at which it now seems slightly likelier uh, that if anything is to bring him down before his time, it will be the fact of paying off his mistresses uh, and then lying about it rather than being uh, in the tank to Russia? Well... <laughs> I've always, um, so I'm very um, satisfied about this if, if, if this is what happens, that I always argued that the Russia element um, was to a large degree um, not exactly a figment of people's imagination, but it had been, tr it, it, it had been exaggerated um, and it had been made the focus where actually it should not have been the focus. But I think we've seen with all, um, whether it's impeachments or other people getting into trouble elsewhere, it's all 
always the case that it's not what what people actually do. It's what they lie about afterwards that gets them into trouble. Um, and that's what we saw with the last impeachment effort with Bill Clinton. It wasn't the fact of what he'd done. Horrific, though, that seems especially in this sort of Me Too day and age. Um, it was the fact that he covered it up and he lied about it. And so the charges against him in the House of Representatives that were then passed to the what was effectively the Senate trial were perjury and obstruction of justice. And it's exactly that that Trump could possibly be vulnerable to. Just a final thought on this one, Florence. A, a continuing refrain from Trump uh, is still that he thinks Paul Manafort's an absolutely fantastic guy, model citizen, uh, to whom a terrible, terrible wrong has been done. Even by Trump standards, though, pardoning Manafort would be quite a, let's be, let's be charitable and call it a bold move. Yes, but that could be a Trump move, although I'm not sure legally he could do that. Um, he seems not, I think if it's not if it's can something considered as a crime like does no, he, have he the can power he to? can he can pardon people convicted of federal crimes he's the president good Uh, We will take a short break now. You are listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Miller, along with Mary Dijewski and Florence Biedemann. Coming up next, did John Bolton meet Nikolai Patrushev in Geneva to explain the United States-Russia policy or be told it? Monocle's entrepreneurial September issue is jam-packed with advice, wisdom and heartening tales of the folks around the world who are building better businesses. We meet the startups pursuing careers in everything from sharpening up the stationary business to surfers helping recycle ocean plastic and mull over why starting older is sometimes better for business. And if the working world isn't for you, well, then there's a career in the French Foreign Legion to consider. Elsewhere, we discuss the late Francisco Franco's next move, visit a seemly startup space in Provence, and bed down in a Danish residence par excellence. We also take you on a design-minded tour of a Tokyo restaurant opening that you may well have heard about, and talk trainers with the man behind New Balance. We also sip wine in Kefalonia before a last meal with the Beiruti cookbook author, Anissa Halu. The opportunity-filled September issue of Monocle is on all good newsstands now. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Mary Dijewski and Florence Biedemann. Now, among those continuing to swallow the indignity of working for Donald Trump, perhaps realising that they may struggle for employment in other circumstances, is National Security Advisor John Bolton. Mr Bolton has been in Geneva meeting with his Russian counterpart, Nikolai Patrushev. Their meeting has been billed as a follow-up to last month's Helsinki summit between their bosses. And a reminder that we still have no idea what Trump and Putin discussed during their private meeting. However, the meeting between Bolton and Patrushev has failed to produce a joint statement, allegedly because Patrushev declined to disavow election meddling. Mary, why would that be a sticking point? I mean, the Ru- Russia just denies everything. That's what they do. Why would they be unhappy about signing something saying, ah, whatever, see if we care? <laughs> well, that's one way of looking at it, but I think the problem is that Russia, um, really like its Soviet predecessor, tends to be very formalistic, and it would not want something enshrined in a document that one of their very senior officials had signed um, which did not reflect official policy. So I think that um, short of either omitting 
that sort of clause from a statement or a statement that, um, as Trump seemed to support at the summit, would suggest, um, well, I don't believe Russia really had anything to do <laughs> with it. Um, that really wasn't going to fly. Um, the slight surprise for, for me was that there was any question of a joint statement and therefore that the idea that there wasn't a joint statement um, somehow became diplomatically interesting because it seemed to me that um, if as it looks, um, Trump or his people felt that it might be a sort of counterweight to what was badly received in Washington um, as the outcome of the Helsinki summit, um, that this might be a sort of counterweight to that, um, then it was it was a big misjudgment to think that they could insert that sort of thing into a statement. Well, on the subject of things being diplomatically interesting, Florence, I'm, I'm a big fan myself of, of diplomatic language and diplomatic euphemism and trying to understand what it actually means. Now, John Bolton has said the quote he used, the, word, the phrase he used was considerable progress. What do you think? I mean, the, the, I'm not sure where that fits in the lexicon. Obviously, when if he'd said full and frank exchange of views, we all know what that means. That's that's just one step short of declaring war. But considerable progress, what, what does that translate as, do you think? So I think you can add it to the, your lexicon of <laughs> diplomatic terms. It means, well, uh, a very little progress. I mean... <laughs> That's interesting. Um, it's entirely possible, I think, that that's exactly what it means. I think it basically means... Mary, do you think it basically means we met, we were in the same room, uh, we, we asked about each other's families, um, discussed holiday plans... I and... think that's probably an entirely reasonable assessment <laughs> yeah. of what considerable progress means. Um, I, I do think that... Um, John Bolton is actually very useful to Donald Trump because he is known to be such an uncompromising hardliner that he presents, as it were, a foil to Trump. And it seems to me that this meeting in part was sort of putting John Bolton out there to reassure all those um, cold warriors in Washington um, that really there wasn't going to be any sort of bilateral deal between Trump and Putin um, that they could um, rest assured everything was as they think it ought to be. Now, I'm not actually convinced that that's true, but the look of it um, and the tone of it um, will probably have gone down better in Washington than the Helsinki summit did. Yeah, I think I agree with that. It's kind of a countering Zilki and Zilki, counterweight. Like, it's kind of, oh, I said no, uh, like Trump pretended when he had said he didn't believe Putin meddled in, in the election. So this is a continuation of this. So now it's just to show, well, everything that happened before was not like it looked, as uh, Trump said, so... I mean, I'm not overwhelmed with sympathy for John Bolton in general, but it must be very strange being him now, Mary. He's got the job he clearly always wanted, National Security Advisor. He is, as you point out, a hardline hawk on Russia and, let's face it, pretty much everything. And yet he has to go into bat for President Trump, whose, whose views on Russia are, well, they are what they are. I was very surprised, I have to say, that John Bolton took the job. Um, I was surprised that he was prepared to serve um, a president whose views on Russia he must have been um, well acquainted with. So I can only think either, you know, as you suggest, that his ambition to have that job one day, um, this was his one chance of getting it, um, or that he felt... Um, and, I mean, know, it, was I either take it, it was either take it now or wait for President <laughs> Eric Trump to offer well, it to 
think there's, there's, there's certainly that aspect. But I think there's another aspect, which is a very American aspect and maybe you know, plays less well in, in, in the UK, which is that he felt a sort of deep obligation to serve um, and to try and maybe um, moderate um, to an extent or maybe the, the, the opposite in terms of his views, um, US policy, that he thought maybe he could, he could play a role there um, in forging a policy that would, in his view, um, be more in the US interests than the sort of policies, at least towards Russia, that Trump was advocating. OK, well, finally tonight, uh, in normal circumstances, there is no newspaper beat-up more inane than the one berating a politician for going on holiday. They are, of course, as entitled to a break as anyone, and if there's a thing, they have telephones. However, circumstances right now are not normal if you're Italy's Minister for Transport. It is barely a week since the collapse of a bridge in Genoa left dozens dead. That being the case, Transport Minister Danilo Toninelli might have been tactful to delay his trip to the seaside and should probably have thought twice before posting pictures of it on Instagram. Um, Florence, how can he have possibly thought that either of these two things were a smart idea? Yeah, I mean, I think he could have gone to the beach, but not showed it to the entire world, you know, with with a with a post on Instagram. I would say uh, he's a um, debutant, amateur uh, mistake, like he's of this new movement, Cinque Stelle, and there are some basics of politics he has not understood yet, which is really surprising that when your uh, citizens are uh, in such a tragic uh, situation as what happened in the Geneva Bridge, you don't show yourself as a happy man. I it mean, already uh, happened with Interior Ministry, by the way, Salvini. Uh, the day after the, the bridge crawl, like, he was seen uh, banqueting, uh, uh, dining with, uh, at dinner with uh, uh, some uh, supporters in Sicily. And those... Uh, images of him drinking wine and enjoying himself already had shocked. So, I mean, it's like they don't learn, but they will have to. I mean, political novice, you know, notwithstanding, I mean, I've, I've never stood for elected office in my life, and even <laughs> I, I think, could have figured out that this was something uh, of a presentational no-no. Uh, Mary, I think it made it actually worse that he tried to preempt criticism with the caption on the picture, which was, a few days at the sea with a family with a vigilant eye on what is happening <laughs> yeah, in Italy. Yeah, yeah. Which was clearly very, uh, very not true. Um, I think there was a sort of additional element here that um, because he was using a visual medium, he was posting his pictures of himself on the beach. Um, that that contrasted so much with the very the the. the, the the very, the, I mean, the extraordinary images that we'd all seen of the bridge collapse. I mean, just in your mind's eye, you have that right in front of you of the way the, the, the bridge was just sort of demolished. In the there was this gap in the middle, and the, and the cars and the lorries that had sort of fallen precipitately into the gap, um, and the, the 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 vehicles that had stopped just a sort of fraction away from complete disaster. And there was that extraordinary set of images. And then you know, this guy goes and posts something which is in some ways um, very graphic and totally wrong sort of image for the circumstances. I mean, it's really, really hard to, hard to gauge where this, this man who presumably has a degree of political experience... 
Well, <laughs> he may not have much more political experience <laughs> if, he, if, if he keeps doing things like this. I mean, F- Florence, is this, though, one of those times at which uh, political theatre does actually matter? Because obviously, as I was saying, I'm sure he is contactable. I'm sure he is actually keeping an eye on the situation. Well, let's extend him the benefit of that much doubt. But is this a moment at which, if you are the Minister for Transport and something like this has happened, whether or not it's actually really doing any good, you should be there. You should be present. You should be having your picture taken, wearing a high-vis jacket and a hard hat, and be talking to the locals. Yeah, I think it's not only for politicians, by the way. It's a kind of human decency, you know. You have friends who are in pain, tragedy. You don't post, you send them your picture. Hi, I'm on the beach and doing my life, you know. You go and visit them and at least you don't look that happy to enjoy your own life. I mean, this is decency. I mean, as a general rule, though, actually, I'll ask you first, Florence, is it it different in France? Do French newspapers do that thing that British newspapers always do of beating up on politicians for enjoying themselves on holiday? Yeah, there is nothing like the British <laughs> but 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 still yeah there was kind of an issue with Macron because uh, he said he would install a swimming pool in his uh, summer retreat so now he backtracked the summer the, the, the pool has been installed but he gave the message uh, through his wife who went out of uh, the castle like riding her bicycle she said oh my husband is resting and studying his dossier like you have to pretend you're working even when you're on holiday because it is, it is it's something I notice about about British Prime Ministers in particular, Mary, when they're in office, they sort of feel obliged to go to, you know, Cornwall and be photographed pretending that they're having a great time. And as soon as they're out of office, the next <laughs> summer, they're, they're in Italy or in Spain or, or wherever it was they actually wanted to go. Well, except that Switzerland is somehow OK and to go walking in mountains is sort of OK because this is obviously sort of the austerity version of abroad. Um, <laughs> so that, 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 that's But the right. seashore is but not good. No, no seashore Seashore and um, sunshine is probably not a but, good but idea. Briti- British <laughs> but British seashore, as long as it's raining, is fine, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Yeah, and I think we had some pictures of Cameron on that, but before he then went off for a second holiday, I think somewhere more exotic. Um, but I think we've, we've also seen, we, we've seen politicians in the recent past who are actually good at this and ones who are extremely bad at it. Um, we, I think Merkel is pretty good. She gets her Mac and her, her, her boots on when there are floods. Um, and Reagan was perfect at it um, but George Bush we remember how it was uh, um, with the with the floods in New Orleans it was a catastrophe indeed it was that does bring us to the end of today's show Mary Dejewski and Florence Biedemann thanks for joining us at Midori House the show is produced by Carlotta Ribello researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Julia Webster our studio manager was David Stevens. music next at 1900 it's The Urbanist with Andrew Tuck we'll have more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200 Midori House returns at 1800 London time tomorrow I'll be your host for that as well I'm Andrew Muller thanks for listening Thank you.